0: Morning. scripture is found in Luke, chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him.
1: Well, there's not much that compares to the first signs of spring. Can you just enjoy the irony of those words that were penned two days ago? I woke up this morning. Jude had an early baseball practice. I looked out the window and I thought, I guess I'm rewriting the start to my sermon. I have all of this talk about spring. Um, So I'm actually not going to rewrite. I'm just going to talk about it. And you'll have to, I think it'll actually be even more significant in light of the six inches of snow that we woke up to this morning. But when I wrote this, I was uh, in the middle of this wonderful kind of warm spell that we had this week, 10 degrees, sunny. I mean, two days ago, I was sitting out in our driveway in the sun cleaning my car. It was just beautiful. It was incredible. And I've started reading this book. The title of the book is Spring, and the author writes uh, I read this this week the green of the trees was still merely a tinge, for that is April. Buds, shoots, uncertainty, hesitation. April lies between the great sleep and the great deep. April is the longing for something else, where the object of longing is still unknown. They're beautiful words. And so maybe this morning they're actually more apt, because maybe we have to long just a little more. We thought the longing was done. We thought spring was here. We thought we could start wearing T-shirts. And we were all wrong. So we have a little more longing to do. The season of Lent, much like the onset of spring, takes us from one season to another. And maybe this morning is a reminder that it doesn't always take us by direct route. Maybe there are detours. Maybe there are roadblocks along the way. Our season of fasting and of increased focus are intended to stir up in us a longing for more. Now in this morning's reading, Jesus invites Simon Peter to put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Now I'm going to rewind and we'll start talking about this passage in a few minutes' time. But as we've been doing each week during the season of Lent, we're taking a couple of minutes during our service to pause and to reflect in quiet. And I'd like us to reflect on this this morning. Jesus invites Peter to do something that he'd already done. That he'd already done many times. That he'd already done all night long. And his response is, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. I'm just going to take a seat for a couple of minutes here, and I'd like us to reflect on this passage. And I'd like you to think about what it is that you have been doing all night without any result. Something that you're maybe tired of, something that you're ready to give up on, something that you're sure is never going to come to fruition. And I want to encourage you this morning to think about that thing and hold it out and say, God, but because you say so, I'll do it again. Let's just take a couple minutes together. Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, we will let down the nets. Now, in short order, Jesus rose from an unknown son of a carpenter to a regional celebrity. He hadn't been in his public ministry all that long, but he had already demonstrated captivating teaching. In the synagogue a spiritual authority supernatural healing and a singular mission he was already in full speed here in luke 4 at the end of the chapter right before the passage that stephanie read for us this morning we read in verse 42 and 43 that the people were looking for him and when they came to where he was they tried to keep him from leaving but he said i must preach the good news of the kingdom to the kingdom of god to the other towns also because that is why i was sent He knew what he was about. He was not going to be wavered. He was not going to be distracted. Now, after Luke records this dramatic announcement that Jesus is going out there from town to town, the narrative, which to this point has actually been advancing at quite a rapid pace, it suddenly grinds to a halt. Things slow down, and now we have a long stretch that takes place in one location. The location is the Lake of Gennesaret, also known as the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Kinneret also known as the Sea of Tiberias. Why? I don't know. The Bible's confusing. Imagine saying, I'm going to Lake Huron, and someone says, oh, you mean Lake whatever? Oh, you mean the Sea of whatever? Oh, you mean the Sea of whatever? No. Like, it's got one name, but for some reason in the first century, they had all kinds of names. So, whenever you run into any of these four names in the New Testament, it's the same body of water. It's a body of water that a lo- was a setting of a lot of Jesus' significant stories around his life, right? There was the time when he was with his disciples on a boat, and this wicked storm brewed up, and they woke him up from his sleep, and, and he spoke to the wind, and the waves come down. It was the same lake where Jesus actually came walking on the water to his disciples who were out on a boat. It was the same lake that was the backdrop to the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus is there by the lake of Gennesaret, He sees a couple of boats and some fishermen washing their nets. Now their day's work was done, their night's work was done. But the spirit of this northern Judean town was collectivist. These people, they lived from hand to mouth, and they had to rely on each other to get by. So when someone said that they needed something, it didn't matter if they were tired, it didn't matter if it was inconvenience. they were going to help them out. And so when Jesus nodded at an empty boat, indicating that he would like to sit in it and pull away a little from shore so that he could make the most of the acoustics of the water side to speak, one of them obliged, and he began to teach. Now, I found an interesting uh, article from uh, uh, Wikipedia talking about here. This is uh, an archaeological discovery made in 1986 when the water levels of The Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Gennesaret, etc., etc. When the water levels were at their lowest that they'd ever been, they actually found this boat that dated from the beginning of the first century. And so, of course, everyone gets excited and says, "This is the boat! This is the Jesus boat!" Now, of course, no one knows that Jesus was ever in there, but this was a boat like the boat that Jesus would have done this teaching in, and that's impressive to kind of think about, to piece in like the missing pieces of the story and help us understand a little more. But the thing about this story, and I mean, I'll talk about some, some exciting things and some encouraging things that come out of this story, but I think the most mind-blowing thing of this story is actually what is not included in this story. I want to read a couple of verses. I can almost guarantee that no one here picked up on this, but this is mind-blowing stuff. Okay, so let's go back uh, to verses 3 and 4. Or where are we? Yes, okay. Then he sat down, And taught the people from the boat when he had finished speaking. Wait a second, Luke. Did you catch it? He sat down in the boat and taught the people, and then when he was finished speaking. Like, Jesus has said some of the most profound things that humans have ever uttered, but we have no idea what he said in that boat. Luke just skips over it. Like, who cares? He's like, yeah, he went out there, he taught some stuff, and then he came and had this conversation with Peter. Peter. And this conversation with Peter is what the, how the narrative unfolds here, and we have no idea what was said in that boat. Arr, the gap between those verses is almost unbearable. What did he say? Did he say the th- same things he always said? Did he say something different that we have no idea what he said? Well, if anything else, it's a stark reminder that Jesus had so much more to say than what we have in front of us this morning, but it's forever lost to history. But, like the Jesus boat itself, the remnants of his teachings remain, and they continue to speak to us today. Now, as a carpenter's apprentice, what did Jesus know about fishing? This is part of an interesting part of the story, right? He was a carpenter by trade, so he comes up to these expert fishermen who do this for a living and says, Hey, I've got some advice for you, all right? Like, imagine this. You have to try to put yourself in their situation. They've been fishing all night and have caught nothing. They've been completely unsuccessful. And Jesus comes up to them and says, Hey, I've got an idea. Why don't you try one more time? They're just like, "Are you kidding me?" Like Luke didn't record their, res- their actual re- responses, and probably for good reason. But because you say so, Jesus had developed a reputation. He carried with him an authority, because of not only his teachings, not only the supernatural powers he demonstrated, they had this authority that he carried with him, and the people were willing to do something that seemed nonsensical to them. And when they dropped their nets? They caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. Not even that, but even an additional boat couldn't handle the load, and they began to sink. So they went from spending the entire night catching nothing to catching so much that their nets began to break. They call on their friends. Their nets began to break. Their boats begin to sink. Like this was over and above what they would have expected. And so when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Now, in our Lenten series, we're walking fairly slowly through Luke's gospel. We're a few weeks in. We're only in chapter 5 here. But even so, we're skipping over certain events. And one of the events that we skipped over was actually the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. She had a very high fever and was very sick, and Jesus came by and healed her, and she got up and began serving people. And I thought this is kind of interesting, because when Peter is the witness of this, you know, miraculous catch of fish, he drops on his knees in awe. And is like, Lord, I'm not worthy. But after miraculous healing of his mother-in-law, there's no response at all. I'll just leave it at that. Sometimes you just notice things. It's like, why? I don't know. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. From now on, you'll fish for people. So there's this old proverb, uh, give a man a fish and you will feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. I was, trying to, I was curious of what the origins of this were. I thought, like, I want, was there a person who said this, or is this saying just kind of been circulating forever? So I looked online, and I discovered, it appears that it was just kind of circulating forever. No one knows who actually said it. But I discovered something else that was interesting, and that is that there are a lot of really funny people who have come up with alternate versions of this proverb, and so I'll share some of my favorite ones with you this morning. Give a man a fish, and he will eat for a day. Teach a man to fish, and he will sit in a boat and drink beer all day. Give a man a fish, and he'll eat for a day. Give a woman a fish, and she'll feed the whole family for a week. Teach a man to fish, and you fed him for a lifetime. Unless he doesn't like sushi, then you also need to teach him how to cook. Give a person a fish, and you feed them for a day. Teach that person to use the internet, and they won't bother you for weeks. Give a man a fish, and he'll eat for a day. Teach him how to fish with the right line, the right bait at the right time of day, at the right sort of spot, and if he has the right recreational commercial license, he may, with practice and experience, actually be able to feed himself and his family for a lifetime. My personal favorite, give a man a fish and you sustain him for a day. Give a fish a man and you nourish it for three weeks. It's, it's just a fake picture. Don't, don't get all grossed out. But I was thinking about it. Like At the end of the day, though, maybe the real question is how often does someone actually teach a grown man how to fish? Like This is an interesting proverb, but does anyone ever teach a man how to fish? You teach boys and girls how to fish. You don't teach adults how to fish. If, you don't, like if I don't know how to fish, well, I'm out of luck. I can just sit there in the boat or stand there on the dock alone. Well, Peter and his companions, they knew everything about catching fish, but they knew nothing about fishing for people. This was new territory. But when Jesus asked them to do something that they had no preparation for whatsoever, they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Now that's miraculous. That's more miraculous than healing a mother-in-law. That's more miraculous than a fish like fish overwhelming and swamping a boats that had been out all night. They left everything to follow Jesus. The Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky writes, "Destroy my desires." wipe out my ideals, show me something better, and I will follow you. This is what Jesus does for us. He shows us something better to inspire us to follow. Now, in Luke chapter 5, the narrative picks up after a little bit. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. There we have it again. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so the first thing that Luke records Jesus' disciples doing after being called is fielding complaints. I found that rather refreshing. I thought, well, the number one task of a disciple of Jesus is listening to people complain. I came across this quote, I think some people enjoy complaining almost as much as they enjoy doing nothing about it. So the Pharisees were complaining. Wait a second, why are you guys eating with these people? And the the disciples are like, this isn't what we signed up for here. But they didn't stop there. They then went on, the very next thing in chapter 5, they started complaining about how lazy the disciples were because they didn't fast or pray as much or in the same way as John the Baptist's disciples. And then the very next thing that Luke tells us, the beginning of chapter 6, is that they started complaining about how they were picking grain to eat on the Sabbath day. So the first three things that Luke tells us the disciples were doing was listening to people complain about how they weren't living the way they were supposed to live. You get the picture? What might have seemed like finding Willy Wonka's golden ticket, Jesus called us, turned out to be an exercise in receiving criticism and condemnation. Welcome to the team, guys. But Jesus wasn't calling people to a church picnic. He was calling them to the cross. This is the thing that we got to understand. This is the thing that lies just below the surface of the narrative in Luke 5 and 6. If the early events in Jesus' public life were pointing to the cross, which is what we've been exploring over the last few weeks during the series in Lent, that everything right at the beginning was foreshadowing these events that would would hang over his life in three years' time, then so were the early events in the public lives of his closest followers. From the very beginning and from the start, he was preparing them to embrace sacrifice, embrace rejection embrace persecution. The very first things the disciples had to do was deal with rejection and criticism. This is how you lead. When I was reading this passage, I was thinking, this is good leadership here. And I remembered years and years ago when I was kind of new in, in this idea of being a leader of a church, I was reading everything I could about leadership. And I remember one of the things, um, and I can't remember who taught it, but it was this idea that the, the way you start to lead is by leading out front of people. It, you, this is what Jesus does. He walks around, he casts out a demon, he heals someone, and people are just following him. That's how you begin to lead. But the next stage of leader, lead, leadership is when you uh, allow someone to stand alongside you, and you invite them into the task with you, and you say, come along with me, do this thing with me. And then eventually, you fall behind, and you watch the person walk out in front of you, and they become the leader. As contemporary author Tom Peter writes, leaders don't create followers, they create more leaders. And that's what Jesus is doing. Well, further in Luke chapter 6, we read about Jesus gathering a core group of 12 around him. He needed to raise up people who would continue his work fishing for people. That's what he had been doing, but he said to the disciples, you are going to fish for people from now on. Now, to avoid any confusion about the caliber of people who are included in this, some of them are never mentioned again. You can read the list of their names. I bet some of them you don't even recognize. You're like, what? That was one of the apostles? That was one of the first people Jesus called? We don't know who they were. Maybe they didn't work out so well, but Jesus called them anyway, just like he calls us. And then something incredible happens. We skip ahead a little to Luke chapter 9. When Jesus called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and cure diseases, and then he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. So they sent out and went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. So Jesus sends them out. He's now in behind. They are walking ahead. They're doing the work that he had been doing. They're doing the work that he would called them to. Now, just as a bit of an aside, and this is really a message in and of itself, but following Jesus is best done in community. He didn't call one person. He doesn't send them out one by one. In fact, in the very next chapter, in chapter 10, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. So first he calls Peter and a couple of random people, then he calls Levi on his own, then he calls 12 and he sends them out, then he gathers 72 and he sends them out two by two. And he told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Man, there's a great harvest out there. There's a lot of work to be done, but there just aren't enough people who are on board with the work. Jesus continued to call people to follow him, and he continued to send them out again, just as he continues to call us today, to both follow him, yes, but also to go out in his name. It's important for us to acknowledge that these people wouldn't have followed Jesus if he hadn't invited them. Peter wouldn't have left everything to follow Jesus if Jesus hadn't said, from now on, you'll be fishers of men. Matthew wouldn't have left his tax collector booth if Jesus hadn't said, follow me. And neither will the people in our lives follow Jesus if we don't invite them to join us in this journey. I was at a presentation this week, and honestly, I felt a little convicted listening to the speaker, and, and she was talking about this, the importance of invitation. And I thought, man, I probably don't talk about this enough in our church. I probably don't emphasize enough this part of what it means to follow Jesus. That part of what it means to follow him is inviting other people to follow him. I mean, it's there in our key values, one of our key values is a journey mentality, and it says right there, we will invite people to experience the eternal kind of life that Jesus offers. That's something that we say matters a lot to us. One of the things that I heard in this presentation was that only 29% of religiously committed Canadians think of evangelism positively. Evangelism is just a fancy word for telling people good news. But when you say that word, less than a third of people who are like really committed in their faith even think positively about it. And I have this hunch that if I did a poll this morning, the number would be even lower in this community. It's a word that makes us, uh. but really what it means, are we inviting people to follow Jesus the same way he has invited us to follow him? If you stick around for discussion groups as we invite you to every week in the gym, at the very end, we do a benediction. We read some words of closing and we close with a prayer. And part of our prayer is, God, through our actions and our words, may you draw others to journey with us in faith. And so we're praying together every week. Like, we're going to use our mouths and we're going to use our actions to try to encourage people and inspire people to follow after you. And God, would you be involved in bringing people to follow you? Fishing for people was not just a job for Peter or the 12 or the 72. Fishing for people is a job for all of us. Now, these people left everything to follow Jesus. But as we try to foreshadow what these events tell us, one day they would all abandon him. One day when Jesus was at his worst, they would all scatter. Meister Eckert writes, There are plenty to follow our Lord halfway, but not the other half. They will give up possessions, friends, and honors, but it touches them too closely to to disown themselves. I think all followers of Jesus run into this. So I want to turn to John chapter 21. It's another story. Now this is on the other side of Jesus crucifixion and his resurrection. So we're going to skip over Good Friday and Easter Sunday. We're not talking about it until that weekend. We're going to skip over to the other side. And I'm going to read a story that will probably sound a little familiar to you, but this is at the very end of Jesus' time with his followers. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. You know what that means, right? It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. See where this is going? Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? <laughs> uh, no, they answered. He said throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Once again, seriously, man. There's no fish on the left side, but there are fish on the right side, really. But when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, "It's the Lord." As soon as Simon Peter heard him say it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he'd taken it off and the water The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So lots of similarities in the story. A night with no catch, a challenge to try again, and an astonishing catch of fish. But in light of how our reading started off today, this is a sad turn of events, really. Jesus said to Peter after the first miraculous catch, from now on, you will fish for people. And here, after the resurrection, Jesus sees them out there on the boat, fishing for fish. And Jesus asked this question. Bring some of the fish you've just caught. What was he talking about? Luke tell, or John tells us that He already had fish on the fire. And I half wonder if Jesus was asking them to bring the people that they were supposed to be fishing for. They abandoned that calling to just go back to where they started. It's an acknowledgement of failure. It's an acknowledgement, of an abandonment of their calling. Because you don't just leave everything and follow Jesus once. As Henry Nouwen wrote, selling what you own leaving your family and friends and following Jesus is not a once-in-a-lifetime event. You must do it many times and in many different ways, and it certainly does not become easier. And so in the season of Lent, we're pressed to ask ourselves, what are we willing to give up? Peter and his companions, Levi, they left everything and followed him. Let's not allow that to excuse us from giving up something a little less than everything. Say, "Ah, I'm not ready to give up everything. We'll give up something. Maybe eventually you'll be ready to give up everything. John 21, it it is an acknowledgement of their failure, but it's also a beautiful reminder of the grace of God offered to every one of us when we fail to follow, when we get excited and commit ourselves to leave everything behind in one moment and then turn back to our own self-interest in the next. But Jesus continues to invite In the words of Thomas Akempis, imagining how Jesus would speak to us, follow me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without life, there is no living. I am the way you are to follow. I am the truth you are to believe. I am the life you are to hope for. I invite you to stand. We'll close in prayer together. God, we acknowledge this morning that these stories are not just ancient stories that we are to stand by and and observe like we would observe the Jesus boat and say, wow, that's a neat thing from a long time ago. These stories aren't a neat thing from a long time ago. They are present and alive today to us. Because when you call Peter to follow, you call us to follow. When you call Levi to follow, you call us to follow. When you send the 12 out, you send us out. When you send the 72 out, you send us out. When you ask us what we've caught lately, God, we don't know how to respond sometimes. But God, I pray that you would inspire us, that the story would inspire us to not only re-up our decision to follow you, but to extend that invitation to the people around us. Help us to understand and accept and embrace the life of a follower of Jesus, whatever that brings our way. And use us as a community following Christ together or considering what it means to follow Christ together to encourage and inspire one another along the journey. Amen. Well, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, we take time at the end of our service for discussion. So I'd invite you to make your way through the lobby and into the gym. There are a bunch of round tables, no set seats. Just grab a seat, some snacks and refreshments, and we'd invite you to join in some good conversation. If you would like to linger a little bit at the end of the service, uh, we will have some prayer available to my right and your left up in the front corner. here to pray with you. God bless.